but some of it obviously is um, down to, if, you, if you're warned, then maybe I think you're warned. There's nothing explicit in what we're saying, um, but it can also be sensitive. So feel free to take your to any point. So with all that in mind, let's pray again before we start, shall we? Father, as we open your word this morning, help us to hear clearly your words, not my voice, not my opinion. Speak to our hearts and give us clarity of thought. We pray that you would give us a fresh understanding of your intentions for lives. Help us to understand plans that you have for our lives. And help us to understand the greatness of your redeeming love that works in us. And through us. Amen. So, scene seconds. We've got Bibles, verses. I'll tell you, the way we'll do this is I'm going to read a little bit. We talk about it. I'm going to read another little bit. I'll talk about it. I'll read a little bit. Okay. It's a okay, but we're just going to work with you. We'll put the passage in the front of the Lord, okay? I'm not clever enough to make up five points. I'm just going to talk for a second. So, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee, went into the region of Judea, to the other side of Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some of the Pharisees came to him to test him. So Jesus wasn't only popular in Galilee, where he had been in the preceding chapters, and the large crowds continued to follow him. He was needed to be healed people. This was very much business as usual, I think. Um, and it's probably not a surprise to us if you are in your Bible or you're in a church, but it won't be a surprise to you that he's turned up. And verse 3 tells us that they came to test Jesus. It's not the first time, it's not the last time that the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. And that's the sort of whole context of what we're looking at. And they asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And um, now, divorce. I don't think it's necessarily controversial these days, but it was controversial back in Jesus' time. And there were two main sort of schools of thought around divorce, and they were uh, consented around two different Jewish teachers, rabbis at the time. Basically, you had one side, was a guy called, um, I don't know how to pronounce this really, Rabbi, Rabbi Shammai. Sounds a bit of a sham, but Rabbi Shammai. He was strict, very strict, very unpopular in his view. But he stated that sexual immorality was the only valid reason to divorce. That's on one side. Another side, a guy called the Rabbi Hillel, um, who had a far more lax and popular view, um, which taught that basically um, any sort of indiscretion, no matter how trivial, was considered valid grounds for divorce. So two different camps, and supposedly um, even burning your husband's uh, breakfast was suitable grounds for divorce. Um, I was kind of hoping Jane would be here this morning. I don't know if she's listening to that message or she's listening online, but Jane doesn't even make my breakfast in the morning. But yes, you get the trivial and the sort of strict. Okay, so two different wooden camps. And the whole point of that is that when the Pharisees came to ask this question, they were trying to get Jesus to side with one of those two opinions. Okay, if Jesus had agreed with the relaxed teaching, then he obviously didn't take the law of Moses seriously, and that would be significant. On the other hand, 
if Jesus had agreed with the much stricter Rabbi Shammai, it would be very unpopular with the crowds of people, which is what the Pharisees were trying to do. So, not surprisingly, the crowds liked the last view of divorce, and um, they liked the idea of easy divorce at the time. And very much the trap had been set, okay, that's the scene, that's the context, and we're going to see how Jesus <coughs> responds. So, if you look back down to verse 4, he says, Haven't you read, he replied, that the beginning of the Creator made a male and female? And said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You see what Jesus says first. Haven't you read? Jesus immediately takes them back to Scripture, he takes them to the Old Testament, and that's a great place to start. And it's a great reminder for us today, particularly when dealing with anything that's sensitive or potentially controversial. Again, this isn't Paul's thoughts. And if you're going to give advice to friends and family, can you please make sure that it's grounded in God's Word? The last thing anyone needs to hear is your perceived wisdom on these issues. People need to hear God's Word. It probably won't be welcome at times. And you can be sure it won't be popular and it may be um, difficult to hear. But there's no doubt it's what people need to hear. Jesus goes on, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator? That's how he starts. The Pharisees wanted to talk about divorce and Jewish teaching. But Jesus wanted to go back to Scripture and talk about marriage. Now it may come to surprise to some of us, but it wasn't humans who dreamt up the idea of marriage. Um, marriage is God's idea. He created it, and it's his institution. And here we've got God's own son, Jesus, taking us back to the first marriage. He's referring back to Adam and Eve. And Jesus focuses on the scriptures in marriage rather than divorce. It's a wise approach for us if we never interested in keeping marriage together to focus on marriage, what God intended to be, rather than talking about the exceptions. Yeah, humans would come right to bring all the situations, don't they? So um, that's, that's basically for a few minutes focus on what marriage is. Um, there's a quote here that I got from Dunbarville, internet somewhere. Some wise man or woman said this. Despite the fact that the Bible speaks with great great clarity on the matter marriage. Many Christians are living confused lives. Recent surveys suggest or revealed that as many as three quarters of the Christian population saw divorce as a reasonable solution to a problem marriage. Which, I don't know if that maybe doesn't surprise us. Um, and it's probably an American survey, but I don't it really matters. The point is that a lot of us, as humans, even as Christians, we see divorce as the solution to difficult marriages or problems within marriage. If we want to start with a solid understanding of God's original intention for marriage, we're going to get in a right place. We know that once we are slapped in the middle of the situation, and that's irrespective of whether we are the victim or the perpetrator, it's all too easy to let our emotions dictate our thinking and our actions. 
perfect and anger, aloneness, our fear, and our disappointment, they all start to shape our responses. It's just too hard. I don't know if I love them. I don't really know what I feel. I don't know if I can forgive. I don't know if I can be forgiven. I don't know if I can change, and I, I really don't know if he or she wants to change or can even change. Can change or even wants to change. And these obviously are necessarily wrong thoughts or questions to have. But if we allow them to shape our response without reference to God's word or the guidance of the path, we'll inevitably respond to situations based on our own emotionally led thinking, which will definitely be wrapped up and worked with our own self-interest, just not helping ourselves. So what was God's original intention? Let's get to that. And we read in verse 4 uh, that the Creator God made them male and female, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So yes, we read right. God designed marriage for a male and a female. That's not my idea. It's not your idea. Again, it's God's word. It's an idea. He intended for marriage to be one man and one woman. And we'll put that. There's seven points, by the way. So that sounds a lot. Don't worry. They go quick. Actually, I don't know if they go quick. I've not read this through. Could be here, sir. For that. Anyway, point one, God made the marriage to be one man, one woman. Um, that's the first of some pretty basic points. Um, so God made the male and female, and for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. I think that leaving the father and the mother and being united to the wife, that's a fairly straightforward concept for me. I don't struggle with that. Um, I don't think I really knew the parents, especially the animals. Um, but we have this strange phrase, one flesh, which is confusing. So, what does it mean for a husband and wife to be one flesh? Well, the first thing to say is that I don't think anybody actually fully knows. Um, and I don't think, I'm pretty confident the Bible doesn't fully explain it, and that's okay. There are some things mysterious about this phrase, and I don't mean some hocus-pocus mystical nonsense, but rather that it's from God, and I don't think it actually can be fully understood. Maybe a little bit like the Trinity, with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three but one. Um, in fact, in Malachi chapter 2, so you can refer this if you want to later on, it draws similarities between the nature of God and the nature of marriage. It says this, um, Hasn't the one God made the two of you one also? Both of you belong to him in body and spirit. And why has the one God made you one? Because he wants his children to be like him. And then in Ephesians as well, Paul talks about how marriage is a reflection of Jesus' love and commitment to the church. So I think it's enough for us to say that one flesh and what happens in marriage, it's a God thing. Jane and I chose to marry each other 
you know, to take it away from Scotland. So, um, but we didn't make ourselves one flesh. We didn't. That's not us that's done that. It's God that's done that. Um, it was God that brought us together. So we're no longer two, but we're one flesh. And the idea that a married couple become one flesh, yes, it includes sexual union, but it goes way beyond that. Now, I quote, one flesh vividly expresses a view of marriage as something much deeper than either human convention or, sorry, human convenience or social convention. One flesh vividly expresses a view that marriage is something much deeper than either human convenience or social convention. And that's basically point two. God creates the one flesh union through marriage. Two. Um, God closes, uh, God, Jesus closes his initial response to that sort of trick question um, with a pretty unequivocal statement. You see there, uh, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You hear that if you go to the marches and the wedding, the minister carries say that again. Let uh, no one separate what God's shown together. Just let that sink in. Read that again for yourselves. Okay? Just let it sink in for a second. You see there's no exceptions in that statement. Jesus sets out his response and he makes several points really clear. God and men were made different, and that God joins man and woman together in marriage, and in marriage. And in doing so, Jesus asserts God's authority over marriage. It's God's institution, it's not man's. And it's fair to say that if it's God's institution, then his rules apply. God made it, God created it, God's will to apply. The world's going to offer us a myriad of alternative views. And basically, God's saying, I joined these two people together to keep your hands up. This is for life because no one is to separate what God joined. And that is point three. Man's not to manage. It's pretty clear. It's already quite hot. I don't know if the temperature's risen in here for feeling a bit of the heat, feeling some pressure. Yeah, we might do, and it's probably some of the external circumstances. It might be what we're doing here, because it's difficult. It cuts deep. The Pharisees aren't um, satisfied to let this drop, and so they still think they can catch Jesus out. So they follow up Jesus' response with a reference back to Moses um, to Deuteronomy. So this, this, this reference is it's in Deuteronomy 24, again, you can read it to yourselves. But in verse 7 they ask, Why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus, if you're saying that God never intended divorce, why did Moses command it? And you can see, that's a little bit odd. But Jesus responds in verse 8 by correcting them. Because they made, I don't know, it was a deliberate mistake or it was unintentional, but either way he's correcting them. He says, Moses didn't command, Moses permitted. 
you to divorce your wives because your hearts are hard. Moses didn't command them divorce, he permitted it. And there's a big difference between commanding, telling someone you must do something, and permitting it or allowing something to take place. The Pharisees are trying to twist Moses' words to suit their own narrative, and they're suggesting that Moses was creating or even promoting divorce, but in fact, he was actually trying to control it. In those days, um, not that I was there, obviously, right? so um, wiser people than me set this out. Um, but divorce was right for often were trivial matters, but it would frequently lead to shame and severe hardship for, in most cases, the women. And so Moses was basically saying, hang on a minute, if you're going to divorce your wife, then you must provide them a certificate which set out the grounds, set out the reasons for that divorce. And it was a compromise that was introduced to basically protect the wife in those situations. But the main point here, and the heart of the matter, is that divorce was only permitted because of the hardness of man's heart. The world's going to sterilize the issue, use phrases like irreconcilable differences. I think we even have like no blame divorces these days. We'll do it all online. But let's take Google, let's face facts. Jesus is teaching that the only reason divorce is tolerated is because of our sinful hearts. That's what it's about. I found, um, found a good couple of quotes again, which are pretty helpful. I found them helpful. So the thought is not so much of the cruelty of men to their wives. And obviously, this goes both ways men, women, women, men. A lot of the way that the language in the Bible here is based on historically there was far more abuse towards the wife than the husband. But it easily could be interchangeable, so I'm not just speaking to men, all of us have this quote, all of us have hearts, all of us have hearts that are hard at times. And so the, the thought in this case is not so much that the cruelty of men towards a wife as of their unresponsiveness to the mind and will of God. That's what we're really going on here. Men. Um, sometimes the heart of the offending party is hard and they will not do what must be done to reconcile the relationship. Sometimes the heart of the offending party is hard and they refuse to reconcile and get past the offence where there is contrition and repentance. Often the hardness of the heart is on both sides. Divorce is never to be thought of as God including as a God-ordained, morally neutral option, but it's evidence of sin, of hardness of heart. So point four, to the good stuff, and um, what divorce was allowed, is allowed, still is, oh, sorry there, um, but it's due to sin. And we can also um, put point five up, see how we're through quickly? It's never part of God's plan. Really, that's just finishing off verse 8, where Jesus says, but it was not that way from the beginning. He's reinforcing what he said at the start. He's again talking back to God's original intentions. When he was in the second marriage, um, it was never part of God's plan. So, so far, 
Typically, so far, so good. I don't know. <laughs> um, it gets harder if you find that. Um, I think I found so far up to this point kind of straightforward, even if I find it difficult, I could understand it. Right? Some of this next bit right to my head. Okay. Um, so, verse 9 is where things really get a little bit confusing. And there's, there's a, a verse in here that's verse, it's, it's referred to a lot like clever people, um, like biblical scholars, as the exception clause. Okay? So, we'll read that a few times. Verse 9 it says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now, if we read that again, and um, like without the exception, just a bit helpful way of doing things. Um, so if we take out the four words in the middle, it says this I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. That's that's the sort of base statement, and then there's the exception put in the middle. So if it was in you can do that in English, take out the bits that are in brackets, yeah, and you can read it if you want. So that's working through step by step. So removing those four words, it just simply reinforces what Jesus is going to say. If you divorce and marry someone else, you're committing adultery and sin in the eyes God's eyes. And that's simply because if you divorce and God hasn't recognized the divorce, well, you're not actually divorced. You might be legally divorced, but that doesn't count in God's eyes. Yeah, but it's that simple. Agree, disagree, that's what the Bible says. And so, what's the exception all about? Sexual immorality. What does that mean? Okay. So, ancient Greek work, I'm not a Greek scholar, obviously, okay. Um, so, the ancient Greek word for sexual immorality is pornea, and you can guess therefore where the word pornography comes from. But pornea, it's a broad word, and it covers an entire range, the entire range of sexual impropriety. It's not focused on just adultery, okay. Um, so, it's not just simply refer to a husband or a wife. Who's having physical sex outside of the marriage bed? It's not that restrictive, it's wide ranging. And Jesus himself um, reinforces this point in Matthew chapter 5. So after the sermon about Jesus goes <coughs> in, he says, um, You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery for the Ten Commandments. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully and has already committed adultery. In his heart. The word heart coming up again, hardness of heart. Jesus about her heart. All of this is heart issue. Now, without casting aspersions, I would hazard a guess that a large percentage of people have therefore indulged in sexual immorality, particularly when you consider what Jesus said in Matthew 5. So, yes, there are explicit porn sites, but films, videos, social media, hot summer weather, all areas where speaking on behalf of all men, it is very difficult not to look at women lustfully. How many of us have committed adultery in our hearts? To both men and women, if we let lustful thoughts lurk in the shadows, I can guarantee they will grab hold of your mind and your heart. You need to confess it to the Lord. If you're married, confess it to your spouse. Speak to someone, pray with someone. Don't let it linger. 
But back to this exception clause, and it's surely obvious, right, that God is not suggesting, or Jesus is not suggesting, that being sexually immoral, as sinful and damaging as that is, does not automatically mean we should be looking to divorce. The default position through difficult times, including unfaithfulness, is to stick together. That's the default. It will not always be possible. But that's God's default. And don't let someone tell you differently. Don't let someone tell you that you'll be better off without that cheating husband or that cheating wife. Just for completeness, I should mention one other reason for the Bible gets where divorce is permitted. It's not required, but it's allowed. And in Corinthians, we'll refer to Corinthians a few times in the next five minutes. Okay? But it, uh, Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians 7 explains the situation that if a Christian man or woman is abandoned by their spouse who's not a Christian, then in that situation, God says they're no longer bound together. And it's, I found this language really helpful because it describes God as the one who does the unbinding. God joins together, and in this case, God unbinds the people, the couple. That's, that's the end of a marriage. That's, that's what God does. That's the unjoining of that one flesh. So while it's not the default position, right, there is biblical permission to divorce your spouse on the grounds of sexual immorality. Um, but before we move on, we'll just be clear about some common reasons that the Bible doesn't give permission, doesn't give permissible reason to divorce. These will be difficult for some of us. Probably at least one that's going to be difficult for us, each of us. So incompatibility, whatever that may mean, but if you get where you think it is, just, just incompatible. It doesn't talk about that one. Growing apart, just growing apart. That's a, you hear that a lot. And it might be true. I'm not dismissing any of these issues here. Um, what about a lack of shared interest? What about a lack of physical attraction? We just don't love each other anymore. What about situations of abuse, of brutality, addictions, real conflict, utter misery? These problems can be really serious, and there is no downplaying of any particular situation here, okay? And each of them falls short of the biblical permissions for divorce. A lot of them will justify separation. And Paul then talks in Corinthians about celibacy within marriage, so being separate, and being part, and therefore being celibate. But even in those situations, the partner is still expected to honour their marriage vows. Because as far as God's concerned, they're still married. The marriage covenant hasn't been broken. Of what God considers to be a difficult reason. Difficult, but the Bible teaches. So the teaching of Jesus shows us that marriage is a promise made to God to our spouse into the world, it's a binding promise, and it cannot be broken by our own discretion. 
God does not recognize the promise being broken. And very simply, they ain't broken. And a little side note before we move into this last section of um, Matthew 19. Um, Paul, again, in Corinthians 17, warns about trying to undo the past in regards to relationships, which is really helpful well because um, God tells us to repent of whatever sin is there and to move on. So if you're married, or you're somebody who's married to a second spouse, and according to what we've heard here, has possibly wrongly divorced the first time, and has since become a Christian, then please don't feel the need to suddenly leave your spouse and go back to your first wife. Nonsense like that, okay? And um, trying to undo the past doesn't work. Really doesn't, okay? We'll talk about this in, in, in a few minutes as we, as we point to close, okay? But as God, Paul says, as God has called you, walk in that place right now. We cannot undo mistakes of the past. And God doesn't. God doesn't tell us to. Okay? So, I said, we'll come back to that. And we'll finish with this stuff here okay? So, um, Number six, I think we'll get a bit of it. Oh, okay, six. Yeah. So, so, number six. Okay, the worst way to relative to other reason. So, I, I could have put the second one in about being abandoned in the non Christian secretary. We're talking about Matthew here. That's the sixth one from Matthew. So, one final section in our reading. Um, and if this is falling on the heavy. <laughs> Heavily, okay? You can take comfort because it really did with the disciples as well. So they were there, and this was tough for them. And verse 10 it tells us their response to the disciples basically. If this is a situation between a husband and a wife, is it better not to marry? The disciples they understood um, Jesus' teaching on managing divorce. They could see that this was not a commitment to be entered into lightly or quickly. We we're basically concluding concluding um, that since marriage is so binding before God, then it may be better not to marry. Logical conclusion, actually, when you see that. And um, again, anybody, why don't we focus on that? You can't, can't help jump to quite things as well as this. And Paul addresses this whole subject, not really going to put touch on it, okay, but uh, I'll read the verses here from Corinthians. <laughs> chapter, um, first Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6 says, um, so Paul's words, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. And Paul was single at this point when he was writing this. So he was basically saying, I wish all of you were single. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, has this gift another has that. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if you cannot control, if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. But it's better to marry than to find the connection. Now thankfully, so we're not studying that chapter. And um, suddenly Paul isn't prescribing singleness or marriage. He's not saying one's better than the other, one's more holy than the other. He's not, and a lot of people try and push that. And that's not what Paul's saying. What he's saying is Christians we should make choices that help each of us glorify God. That's the, that's the main point. Everyone is made different by God. And singleness 
may be better for some, and marriage will be better for some. But glorifying God, God is the goal. And we'll see the same point here when we look at Jesus' response to the disciples. The disciples are like, oh, what's the point? No point get married. Jesus says, similar to what Paul's point was, not everyone, so this is verses 11 and 12, not everyone can accept the word, this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So here the term eunuch, if you're not familiar with it, it is used in this setting, in this context, for those who abstain from sex and marriage. And in the Bible, those two things go together, and only together. So Jesus outlines three types of eunuch. So there are those who are born without the capacity for sex and marriage. There are those who may have a surgical procedure, so that they don't have the capacity for sex and marriage. And then thirdly, there are those who choose to live without sex and marriage. And as Jesus said, it was for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So the disciples said, maybe it's better not to marry. And Jesus was responding by saying, yes, that's great. But not everyone will be able to remain single. Not everyone can accept it. As Paul um, says, each of us have a gift. If you don't have the gift of singleness, then it's not what God intended for you. Both Jesus, Paul and Jesus are trying, they're really trying to get to the motives of our decisions. Jesus reinforces that those who choose to remain single should do that for the kingdom of God. That's, that should be their only for sole purpose. Um, and it does beg the question, uh, how do we know if we have the gift of singleness? Um, well, Jesus doesn't address it here. Um, I don't have any particular advice on it, but the simple answer is probably to seek God in prayer. Um, I know that it is true that where God guides, he provides. And Paul says that um, it's better to marry than to burn with passion, in Paul's words. Um, so that's probably a good indicator of whether you've been given the gift of singleness, if you're burning with passion or a member of the people of the opposite sex, you probably have not got the gift for singleness. Yeah, yeah. So there's kind of obvious signs that may dictate that, okay? Um, but either way, um, I think it's vital that, I, I don't know, if, I don't think it is in this church, which someone's really thankful of, um, but I've seen in the past that singleness can be treated as some sort of stigma. Like, but just like marriage, the reality of single life is that there will be difficulties in single life without a shadow of a doubt, and there are difficulties in marriage without a shadow of a doubt, but both are gifts in the Lord. And both, that's our final point. Only some people, I could put some people who have to also some people have to marriage, but there are only some who have that gift, like with Jesus and Paul. Um, so just you can read maybe the way God created marriage to be between one man and one woman. God creates this one flesh union through marriage. Man or woman, people, humans are not to end marriage. Divorce was allowed, is allowed, 
due to sin. Divorce was never part of God's plan. Um, divorce for reasons other than sexual immorality, followed by or adultery, and then only some people, only a few or some will have the gift of singleness. I've written down a few things, a few words in closing. Um, I guess there are things that, as I was preparing, came to the forefront of my mind. Okay, they're, they're not in particular order, okay? Um, and I'm not going to back them up for with verses. They should be fairly straightforward things, I think. Some of them are hopefully really solid, strong, but they are solid, strong, but things that we need to really cling on to when we're struggling. So I'll read them out, hopefully some resonate, and then we'll, we'll close in here. Um, we need to stop making excuses for our behaviour and acknowledge the sin in our lives. If you think you and your marriage are immune from adultery, you better wake up fast. Don't be so foolish to think that it will never happen to you. If you're someone who's just involved in divorce, separation, or adultery, then that might be recently, or it might be a long time in the past. Regardless of whether you're the victim or you're the instigator, you'll know that there are scars, they're very real, they're unavoidable, and they will cut long and they cut deep. Don't let the shadow of your past stop you living for Jesus now. Grace, forgiveness, and long suffering will be required, but the Lord provides. There is forgiveness and redemption with God, and there are no second class citizens in God's family. God loves us with an intense and everlasting love. Marriage is for life, but salvation is for eternity. Our bond with the Lord is unbreakable. And unlike marriage, there are no exceptions. There's nothing, literally, absolutely nothing, and separate us from the love of God. We pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, would you Prevent our hearts from going cold towards you. Don't our hearts go hard on Would you ignite the flame in our hearts that burns with passion for you and for you alone, Lord? Lord, would you help us as a, a family, as a church, Lord?
to support each other through a difficult situation through life. Help us always to direct each other back to the work, no matter how unpopular or how difficult that might be. Help us to love one another, help us to be gentle with each other. Would you help us to be people who remind each other of your word and what your intentions were. We know we live in a fallen world and we know that we are sinful and we are very self-serving and we have got work for use and what is best for us, Lord. But we know what is best for us. We just pray, Lord, that you would be gracious to us, Lord. Thank you for the many uh, examples of people in this church who have by your grace, live through really difficult situations, Lord, and continue to do so. Help us to uphold each other. Help us to serve each other, to pray for each other, and to comfort each other, Lord. But Father, just uh, yeah, as we close the day, thank you for your word uh, and uh, encourage us in your word as we move into the holy bed. In Jesus' name.